So I'm very pleased to be joined today by Professor Stephen van der Putten at the University of Ghent in Flanders in Belgium. Uh, Stephen's published a lot, and I mean a lot, on medieval religion in general and medieval monasticism, monks and nuns in particular, with a particular interest in memory, leadership and the, the notion of reform, which is always a fascinating thing to talk about. Welcome to the podcast, Stephen. Oh, thank you for having me, Charles. Let me begin, Stephen, just a, a, a straightforward question. People who are listening who may not be very familiar with medieval monasticism might associate this with the, in, in the 11th century, the monastery of Cluny. Um, you work on Cluny, of course, but, but there's more going on in, 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 in monasticism in the 11th century than Cluny. Is, is, that, is that right? That is absolutely correct. Uh, Cluny is an evergreen in surveys of med- the medieval past and also of monastic history. And you do actually have a number of of surveys, you know, uh, Lawrence's medieval monasticism is, uh, actually has a chapter, The I, I think it's called The Age of Cluny or something. And it, it, it strictly discusses the, well, 10th and 11th centuries from the perspective of Cluny. And up to a point that is justified because the Cluniacs did some amazing things in this period, but they were also very, very good at promoting their own, you know, their own idea of self and of telling other people that they were actually the pinnacle of monastic achievement in that period. And I've, I've just co-edited a volume on the medieval Abbey of Cluny with, with Scott Bruce and all the papers except for mine obviously are, are fantastic in the volume and, and what becomes quite clear is that our perception of Cluny as the, the the dominant monastic phenomenon in this period very much derives from a literary tradition a Cluniac literary tradition that emerged at some point in the late 10th century and then flourished in the 11th and early 12th centuries where it's really brought home in a very very emphatic way that Cluniac monasticism is you know the way these the whole organization is 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 put together its spirituality that's the way to move forward with monasticism in general let me first say something about cluny uh, itself and the cluniac system itself if you look quite closely at how it's organized how it's run how different institutions within the cluniac system experience the cluniac spirituality uh, implements the cluniac idea of how to run a monastery you see an enormous amount of diversity mm. also in terms of how individual monasteries in the cluniac system uh, relate to the the surrounding society to uh, local laws local bishops and so on and so on all of that you know there's so much diversity that cluny as a phenomenon becomes hard to grasp and of course if you look beyond the cluniac system what you see is First of all, a sort of a a nebula of institutions that are influenced by Cluny, but emphatically don't want to be associated institutionally with Cluny. Um, It's a a term that was first coined by Dominic Jonia Pratt, who says you have a a small core of institutions that belong to Cluny with it. They had the Abbey of Cluny itself, and around that you have this nebula, it's sort of galactic semantics we're using there, of institutions that kind of adopt elements from Cluniac spirituality, Cluniac governance, those aren't really Cluny. So there's something different. We need to study them properly to understand what they are and why they're kind of Cluniac, but not really. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I think it's even that point that, yes, the Cluniacs are doing interesting things, but they're also very good at representing themselves in ways which uh, might mask complexities, which you, of course, and others are are trying to uncover in in the practice. And I mean, this leads very nicely into my, well, the the next question, Stephen, which is you've written 
four articles, um, all interlinked. They're all coming, well, they'll come out or they're in press about 11th century um, monks and nuns, actually, um, and not about Cluny, um, in fact. What's the intervention you're trying to make with these, with this sequence, this set of four articles? Yeah, not about Cluny, um, which is, I think, pertinent because the vast majority of religious institutions, monasteries in this period, were not uh, Cluniac institutions. So we, we need to look at them to understand what's going on in this wider monastic landscape. Now, that my reason for looking into the case studies I'm developing in these four articles, and I, I'll I'll mention them briefly in a minute, is that in the during the first lockdown, I didn't have any opportunity to travel, to go to conferences. So I had a lot of time on my hands and I just decided to read all of the hagiographic production from the late 9th century until the middle of the 11th century for the entire region of Lotharingia. So the old... Wow. <laughs> and it's about 300 individual texts. So there's this early medieval texts that were rewritten in this period Miracle stories, saints' lives, uh, new texts also, um, you know, small editions, some liturgical texts, all that stuff. And it was uh, uh, quite a a wild ride, I have to say. But at least I I got to read all of them. Well, all I could identify. Um, And there's a lot of variations and manuscript variations. I couldn't couldn't go into those, but I just Mm -hmm. took all of the best editions and then got to to read all of that stuff. I mean, this this is quite a lockdown project, Stephen. This is the... uh... It, it's 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 really a lockdown project. So I just sat in my garden with it with a huge stack of of, of printed editions and um and and you know with my computer and, and my iPad and and just just went through all of them and made notes on what struck me about them. And what is quite surprising is that especially around the year one thousand, you see a lot of very small, very insignificant, so to speak, religious communities thinking, starting to think quite hard about. Um, the world around them that is that is in a state of flux. Society is in a state of flux. Economic, you know, the economic situation is a state of flux. You know, the legal situation also of religious communities is in a state of flux, but also expectations by lay people of what religious communities are supposed to do, what, what their place is in society. All of that is changing. And you see quite a few religious institutions, very small ones, sometimes of 10, 12 people, also bigger ones, starting to reflect on who are we, what is our place in the world, how can we justify the narrative we want to project about who we are, what our position is, how we relate to various uh, clerical and lay authorities, um, how can we tell that story? And often, as, as was the case in earlier centuries also, they use hagiography to do that. Uh, what, is, what is surprising that is, it's, it's often, as I said, very small communities uh, where if you look in the bibliography, for instance, on these institutions, you get two articles from the 19th century, and that's basically it. And the edition would be a 17th century edition, which no one has looked at properly. So I wanted to, to do that just as a, as a sort of an exercise. And I singled out a couple of texts that seemed particularly intriguing to me. So I, I, I did one which, which was published last year, I think, at, at the end of last year on Deodatus of Lura. No one has heard of Deodatus and no one has heard of Lura, which is obvious, which is, is quite, you know, it, it, it's quite amusing to me to work on these extremely obscure case studies. And the analysis basically, well, in, in the article, I try to argue that this extremely insignificant late 10th century hagiography of us, a super obscure saint from the 7th century, actually tries to tell an extremely complex story about identity in a 10th century setting, but also in a 7th century one, which is when 
Deodatus supposedly lived, and it ties in with a number of very big questions a lot of these religious communities are asking about how to organize themselves, how to defend themselves against uh, Episcopal interventions, lay interventions. And it, ultimately, it's about how uh, monastic leaders are trying to collaborate, uh, establish collaborations between institutions. And that I find really interesting because there's a major gap in scholarship. So we know that things are happening over the course of the 11th century, later 10th, 11th century, where a lot of religious institutions are trying to find ways to collaborate, to put together their resources, human resources, but also their, their, their legal arms or whatever, and, and, and defend themselves against all kinds of interventions by outsiders. But we don't really know how they do it. There's a lot of talk about confraternities changing and so prayer fraternities and confraternities changing over the course of the 10th, 11th century. But we don't really know what is going on in some of these hagiographies. And the life of Deodatus, for instance, is one of those examples. There are strong allusions to the fact that abbots and sometimes uh, abbesses, but sometimes also abbesses and abbots are working together, uh, exchanging know-how about how, for instance, to forge uh, a privilege, uh, a papal privilege from the 7th century or something, how to write a hagiography that tells a story that puts yourself in a, in a very advantageous light, that argues that you should be completely free from any uh, interference by the bishop, and so on and so on. And that makes it really interesting. And I, I found a couple of other examples where, you know, the same attitude or the same type of questions these religious communities and their leaders are asking are approached from a different light. For instance, how the cult of saints and the cult of relics especially can be used as a sort of weapon against Episcopal interference, how by promoting a new saint or promoting once again a saint that was basically forgotten and presenting a new saint's life to the Pope might actually help you to get the Pope on your side and you might get a privilege where uh, the Pope says, well, the local bishop can't interfere in your legal affairs, so to speak, all, all that stuff. It's, it's four case studies where I try to, that, that are extremely detailed, I have to I'll admit that, but it's necessary to go into that level of detail to understand exactly how these religious communities are positioning themselves in a, in a, in a social field, also an ecclesiastical field that is becoming increasingly complex, increasingly dense, and also uh, increasingly competitive. I think that's important. And so this is, it's actually three articles where I look into specific individual uh, hagiographic texts, and I try to dissect them entirely and, and see how all of that is expressed. All of these concerns are expressed in these texts. And then in a final article, I wanted to understand how, uh, you know, who is writing these texts. And sometimes these are local authors, but sometimes these are also, and that is fascinating, authors who are actually itinerant authors go from one institution to the next and actually show their portfolio of hagiographical texts they've written previously and say, well, if you want to tell a story where you defend your own interests, I can do that because I've done it before. And so we found, together with a, a very bright young scholar, Jeroen Dukjusen, who does stylometric analysis, we actually managed to uncover the... Um, the oeuvre, so to speak, of an itinerant hagiographer from the late uh, 10th and early 11th century, authored probably up to 15 different texts, including the Customary of Fleury, which is a very important text, and one of the earliest uh, 11th century uh, commentaries uh, on the rule of St. Benedict's 
really interesting stuff, but also a lot of hagiographies. And so we, we, we put together our respective know-how, mine very classic, his stylometric, to try and reconstruct the oeuvre of, of, of one of these authors. And he moves what around you, a lot, right, this, this, this particular individual. He moves around uh, wide moves areas of Europe. Quite, quite a lot. So it is someone who pops up in Lotharingia, probably in the region of Trier, uh, and then moves to what is today France, and then in the in the uh, in, in Lorraine, in the the Vosges Lorraine region, goes to Fleury, then goes to Rome, then goes to Monte Cassino, <laughs> then goes to Venice probably, and ends up in Bavaria. And then, well, no, he doesn't end up in Bavaria. He goes to Trier, and then he he comes back to Bavaria, and he probably ends his life in in Bavaria. It's a, quite a fascinating story. It's really interesting to see that. Um, a lot of these religious institutions are connecting with each other in other ways than the Cluniacs are doing. So they're not these individual aisles in a, in a religious landscape. They're also connecting, but in different ways that are more difficult to perceive for us, to identify and distinguish for us in the primary evidence than, than what the Cluniacs are doing. Yeah. Um, and it, it's interesting to look into that. But if, you know, in, the, in the four articles I show, one, how hard it is to identify these connections, but secondly, also how you can do it anyway, um, by looking at these hagiographies, by reconstructing the, the the oeuvre of certain authors and trying to see recurring patterns in the way they represent monastic identity, in the way they try to talk about ways in which monastic leaders try to exchange information, connect their institutions to each other, and so on and so on. I mean, you paint, Stephen, the picture of these uh, these autonomous institutions, and that's something which is always is. And they have yeah. got their own. Um, they're not part of the ecclesia cluniensis. They are doing their own thing, but as you say, they're facing similar problems. So they're kind of learning from each other. But this yeah. leads me on to a, a, another question, then, actually, which is something which comes up a lot in your work is the idea of leadership, as I mentioned, um, but also kind of collective identity. And I'm, I suppose, I'm wondering: Are these? Is this a kind of? Is is what you're talking about? an example of, of individual monastic leaders sharing from each other, or is it a kind of collaboration between communities, um, or both, I suppose? But Probably both. What you see is that uh, in some cases, you have very dynamic monastic leaders who are trained in a particular context and then send out to lead another institution. What you often see is that they bring with them certain attitudes, certain know-how, certain connections also that make it easier for them to express themselves in a certain way, pursue certain policies, and so on and so on. But I don't think any of those actions, any of those attitudes could have been sustained over a long period of time if there hadn't been any support for them uh, from below, so to speak, from these communities themselves. As a monastic leader, you can't do all these things by yourself. Even launching a hagiographic project or launching a project to forge charters or I don't know, intervening with the Pope or something like that. You need support for that. And monastic literature tends to highlight the role of these leaders, tends to you know, present them as individual people who may take individual actions. But if you look closely at what they're doing, even in a very practical sense, they need a lot of people around it to help them, to support them, to communicate with others. They need messengers to go to that other monastery to ask, you know, how have you done that to write a hagiography? They need people to go to Rome. They need people to assist them with producing new texts, assist them with running a monastery and so on and so on. So it's, it's very much an interplay between dynamic leaders and, and the communities themselves. And what is interesting is, is when we have examples when that, that collaboration breaks down or fails to, to come off the ground. 
And there's some examples of that. And, and th- that, is some, that is something I'd, I'd like to look at in, in, in the future. So, you know, where you have a dynamic leader arriving with all the best intentions and then failing to bring across um, his or her message to the community and then failing to set up a, a local collaboration. You mentioned actually briefly Imo of Gorse, who might fall, I don't think he falls into that category because he becomes abbot in different places, but isn't always exactly. well received, right? But, exactly, right. exactly. And there's a lot of, now the problem with, with you know, studying evidence from this period, and especially the period around the year 1000, is that there's a lot of evidence, but a lot of that evidence is very, very elusive. It's not very explicit. It alludes to issues. It alludes to problems it mentions like Imo of Gorse in a very specific way well in a, in a specific way that suggests that the author may have a dim view of that leader or wouldn't regard Imo Abbot Imo of Gorse as as competent as his predecessors for instance and what that means we, we don't really understand that in Yes, but there's ways to to do more research on that and get a better sense of what is going on, I think. One of the issues which all these monasteries and convents or female monasteries are facing, Stephen, is the papacy. Uh, the papacy is changing its position. You mentioned some of these several these articles, Pope Leo IX, who crosses, he's actually bishop as he, as, of Toul, so in, in, in France, but becomes pope, but then crosses back over the Alps and issues privileges and all kinds. So there's a very active papacy going on. Um, how does this, what does this mean for the monasteries, the monastic communities you talk about uh, to have such an active papacy kind of, uh, you know, travelling around? Well, one of the first things that comes to mind if you ask that question is, 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 is a paper, a recent paper in a, in a volume that I'm currently editing actually about, um, about reform and papal reform in the 11th century, in the early 12th century, by my good friend Nicolangelo da Cunto, University of Milan. And he makes a really good argument about the fact that there is no such thing as a, a single papal policy regarding anything, basically, in the 11th century, that you have to look at the Gregorian reform, obviously, it's not the, 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 the product of Gregory VII, it's a sort of evolving thing, from one tenure to the next, you get different attitudes by the Pope, um, different policies also, and different outcomes of these policies, and different ways in which they relate to different strands of religious life, obviously, and so Pope Leo IX is one among many case studies you could actually single out for investigation. And now Leo himself has been studied quite a bit, and there's there's lots of papers and lots of, of volumes on him. But we should actually look at the popes before and after him because it would be quite interesting to see what is different about his policies as opposed, you know, to to compare to to these others. Now Pope Leo the Knight moves around quite a bit. Pope Leo the Knight issues quite a few privileges to religious institutions. I would be tempted to say that his role in determining what's in these privileges has been slightly overstated in the older scholarship. I think a lot of, well, in one of the articles I've, I've well, two of the articles actually I've, I've, I, that are now in press, I argue that the content of the privileges Pope Leo issues to these institutions is very much dictated by what these institutions present to him as a sort of proposal, you might say this in the privilege, and there's a negotiation going on. And if the Pope agrees that, you know, from his viewpoint and out of this institution, it's actually quite advantageous to say exactly that, he will probably do it. Hence the significant differences between the contents of, 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 of different privileges issued by 
the Pope in the in, in, in over the course of his tenure. So he, he adapts himself to the local situation. He looks at the local situation, adapts himself to what um, these people are willing to offer him and how the negotiation between himself and obviously his papal court and those institutions runs and then looks also at the interests of different stakeholders. If you want to distill from that, and I'm not a specialist of Leo IX, obviously, if you want to distill from that a monastic policy by Leo IX, it's probably not going to be one that is about granting immunities or granting privileges or this or that. It's about being interested in looking at the local situation of these institutions and trying to figure out a way, a sort of a compromise between different stakeholders that is to the advantage of these religious institutions. Mm. I mean, this is such a hallmark, isn't it, in your work of thinking about how these institutions are setting the agenda, right? I mean, the Pope is listening and and he's got lots of influence too. Yeah, he's got influence too. And obviously, because of his family connections in the region where he issues most of his privileges in the Toul region, he also looks quite closely at the interests of his aristocratic relatives. He's also quite sensitive to the interests of the aristocracy in general and the interests of his bishops in general. So he's really a guy who is very sensitive and this is something i like from my own background as a researcher i really like to see a pope being really interested in very local uh, settings and how these work and how people interact with each other and institutions interact with each other at, at a very local scale and even you know the, the leader of the catholic church in the middle of the 11th century uh, here you have someone who is interested in knowing exactly how things work in a particular valley somewhere in the wooded hills of 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 of, of uh, Lorraine or Vosges or another part of France or Italy or whatever and that I find really interesting and it, it tells you something about Leo's attitudes I think and in his perception of the world at that at that point that it's really a patchwork of local societies that are connected to each other obviously but at the same time continue to function as they did before on a very local scale where you have to look at local interactions local communities local stakeholders yeah so there's no yeah it's, it's not a question of imposing a, a, a papal template basically because it has to no. be it has to be yeah um, i don't think um, so um moving on seems to a slightly different well a very different question really You've written, as I say, a lot about about um, monasticism and, and and religion, and including these four articles, all of which are in are in English. Um, in fact, you write mostly in English, and I wondered if you could explain why um, you don't write so much, for example, in Flemish or or French. You, you speak both Flemish and and French, but but you tend to write in English. And why why is that? Well. You know, if, if you write about 10th and 11th century monasticism and 12th century monasticism, monasticism in the Middle Ages in general, you have to write for an international audience. And that international audience will, uh, well, not all of them will, um, well, let's say not all of them will speak uh, Dutch or read Dutch. And so it's quite natural for someone who is a, a native speaker of Dutch to look uh, for other ways to you know, communicate with a, a broader audience by writing in another Western European language. I do publish uh, in French, but mostly in English because that's it's it's easiest for me. It's the the the, the largest common denominator, so to speak, uh, <laughs> are people who 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 can at least read English. And there's a lot of debate in in different European countries about you know scholars writing in their own native language and for their own cultural environment, and uh, as opposed to always writing in English or in French or in German. Uh, my position in that is that um, you know if I write a scholarly uh, article or a, a monograph or whatever, I want to write for as many of my fellow ac- academics as possible. 
so that people can can give feedback, criticize, or use my work or whatever. But I still teach, uh, well, the majority of my courses are obviously in, in Dutch. Um, I also uh, am invited quite a bit to go to speak to, you know, different kind of audiences and all my public outreach or most of my public outreach activities are in Dutch. And I think it's a good way of still using my own native language in that context. It, it doesn't make much sense to write an article, for instance, about the life of Deodatus of Lure in the late 10th century in Dutch, because there will be three people probably <laughs> reading it, as opposed to maybe... I don't know, 12, um, <laughs> if I read it in English. Um, but of course, you also need to engage with, with local audiences and local public. And then, of course, mm. you know, my own language is into play. It's, it's just an, not, a, not an ideological choice, or a, but it's more a pragmatic, a pragmatic yeah. thing to, to, to write in English. Yeah, I'm interested in that, uh, that, 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 that kind of two levels, I guess. Yeah, but of the of English language. Yes, and there's a legitimate concern with a, with a lot of my you know fellow Dutch speakers, but also people in other countries that if you write in another language than your own native language, you might not always be able to express yourself in the same refined way as a native speaker of English or a native speaker of French, and that does come into play quite often. So uh, there's always this sense of underachieving a little bit because I don't have you know the same the same vocabulary as a native speaker of English and my grammar can be sometimes a bit if uh, as you as you're probably hearing in in, in in this podcast but you know what one tries one tries and and and, and sometimes the result is 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 okay as far as I'm concerned yeah uh, Stephen, I think in your case, it's, it, it's usually a little better than, than, than OK. Um, let me let me uh, wrap things up then with a question I always ask at the end of these uh, podcasts. Um, what, what, what are you currently working on? Well, as I mentioned, I'm editing a volume uh, called Rethinking Reform. So it's going to be 12 papers by different authors who are all working on reform or all asking questions that have something to do with reform in the 10th and 11th, especially the 11th century. So you have, we have a, a contribution by Rachel Stone, who's working on development of masculinity, someone who is working on social developments and their relation to religious reform, that kind of thing. So that takes a lot of my time because editing a volume is, is, is hard work. I'm also publishing a couple of, of, of well, preparing a couple of book chapters and articles as spin-offs of my uh, my latest book on the reception of the Middle Ages in the early modern period, which is quite fun. I'm, I'm looking at 18th century, 18th century uh, uh, clerics writing about 10th century charters and completely misidentifying them, uh, not being able to figure out, you know, from what century they date and what they are about, not being able to uh, read uh, the script, that kind of thing, it's it's quite funny and it's quite quite amusing, actually. It's also um, related to, and that is something which is really interesting to me, uh, also relating to the rise of modern scholarship and the way in which these 18th century authors are trying to collect as much material as possible. In some cases, right up to the, the French Revolution, they're trying to collect as many copies as possible of uh, medieval charters, mm. not always knowing what to do with them, but discussing them at length in their correspondence so and that shapes i guess uh, that shaped what what later historians did as well right in those collections exactly, kind of it, exactly. Yeah. And, and a number of these initiatives actually were resumed in some shape or form in the 19th century trying to figure out what material is being collected why it's collected what the criteria for selection are already in the 18th century makes is, is a really interesting exercise so i'm reading a lot of the late 18th century correspondence by these French erudites in the Cabinet des Chartes in, in Paris and, and uh, who, who, who actually trying to 
make a sort of a, a huge collection of copies of charters, medieval charts, uh, and trying to figure out what to do with them and maybe write a, a massive history of France, which never materialized, obviously, because of the French Revolution. But, but the, the way in which their work shaped 19th century editorial projects, but also uh, research itself is, is, is quite illuminating. So I'm, I'm working a bit on that. I'm, I'm, I'm having fun reading these very odd correspondence. Of, you know, you have the Cabinet de Chartres, which is a central institution in Paris that, that's trying to obtain as many copies as possible of these charters. And they often put to work members of religious congregations who do nothing but write to Paris to say, I need more money, I need more resources, I can't get to this archive because the nuns are refusing entry, entry to me. That kind of thing is just, it's just um, hilarious and it, makes for a, it will make for a couple of fun articles, I think, I, I, I guess. And then a, a final, more serious uh, project I'm working on. So I've, I've done a, a lot about uh, leadership, as you mentioned. I've, I haven't done very much about community. So I'd like to do something about community building in the 10th century from a, a monastic perspective. How do you actually set up a monastic community in the 10th century? And how do you convince people to get a sense of shared purpose, communal identity? How do you how do you bring them together and why do some of these experience, experiments work and why do some of them collapse after a while? And how do people perceive collapses in community experiments? So do they see it as a failure or do, it, do they see it as the next step towards something better? So I'm, 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 to be more precise, I'm, I'm reading Life of John Gores and I'm trying to figure out a bit more than you uh, and, and, and Otto Gerhard Oechsler ha, have written about it. So I'm, I'm trying to get... Uh, to move one step, um, not beyond that, but just find out more interesting stuff about what the author is trying to say and then compare it to other texts that talk about experiments in religious community building and especially about failed experiments. So I'm, I'm trying to do something with that. Whether that's going to result in an, in an actual article or a book chapter, I don't know. Or if a book, even, I think, in your case. I don't know, I don't know. I, 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 I just don't know at this point, but it's, it's a fascinating thing and I, I, I really enjoy looking at how people think and write about, even through the bias of, of hagiographic text and biographic text, about, about failure, failure to establish community. It's interesting to me because it's, it humanizes also the whole story of religious life in that period. There's a lot of failure, there's a lot of trial and error, and I enjoy, I enjoy thinking about that, reflecting on that. And, and then also trying to see if there's elements or, or you know, if there's there are there's very surprisingly few references, for instance, in these texts to when a religious community collapses or when an effort to establish a religious community ends in in tears. There's very little mention of a lasting trauma with these people. A lot of these people just are conditioned to move on to something else. And of course, you have to take into account the bias of the sources. And, you know, if you read a biographical source about a hero who tried a couple of times and then established a wonderful religious community, of course, he's not going to be traumatized. By it. But there's other texts that talk about, you know, how people deal with the end of a community and the, the need to find another another purpose for themselves in life or another a way of life, establish a, another way of life for themselves. So that's, yeah, that's um, amusing and interesting. Yeah, it sounds fascinating. I think they, they think about the human impacts of these experiments in in in, yeah. in, in living yeah, exactly. together, and, and yeah, the fallout from when it goes when it doesn't go as planned. Doesn't make yeah, well. exactly. um, Seeing this all sounds fascinating. Uh, we look forward to reading this, and thank you very much for joining the podcast. 
Thank you. Thank you, Charles, for having me.